are listening to Radio Free Galisteo. This is John Shannon. Our guest today is Cynthia Kaufman, the author of the book, The Sea is Rising and So Are We, a Climate Justice Handbook. You can find it at pmpress.org. Cynthia is the director of the Vasconcelos Institute for Democracy in Action at De Anza College, where she runs and teaches a community organizer training program. She is the author of three books on social change, Challenging Power, Democracy, and Accountability in a Fractured World, Getting Past Capitalism, History, Vision, and Hope, and Ideas for Action, Relevant Theory for Radical Change. She has been active in a wide variety of social justice movements, including Central American Solidarity, Union Organizing, Police Accountability, and most recently, Tenants' Rights and Climate Change. She publishes on social justice in Common Dreams. Cynthia, can you give us an overview of your new book? All right. Well, thank you for having me. So basically, the book is is an introduction to anybody who wants to get involved in climate activism. Um, I've been involved in climate change work for a while, and I just know that one barrier for people being involved is that it feels sort of technical and scientific, and there's there's sort of a lot to know. Um, and yet I feel like dealing with the climate crisis, we absolutely need more activists. We need more people who are pushing against the, you know, just rolling along of uh, destructive systems and reproducing themselves. And, and um, you know, the, the scientists and the engineers have done their part. And now it's time for the activists to, to, to get the, the changes needed adopted as quickly as we can. And so we need everybody involved in the movement. And I wrote the book as a way to help people have all the tools they need, need for from beginning to end to be able to um, be super effective in the movement. This work is is essentially an instruction manual for climate activists, how-to for disrupting the status quo. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair, except, yeah, it's a how-to, but then it's also a little bit the backstory. You know, like there are some things you might need to know about, so it's a how-to in that sense, too. Do you know what I mean? In other words, a how-to both in terms of kind of organizing skills and, and what are the tools and policies and tactics, but it's also the kind of big-picture background. Yeah, and there's one other thing that I'm doing in the book that I think is important is that I think a lot of people are not getting involved in the in uh, climate change activism work because they feel a huge sense of despair. And one of the things that I've really learned being involved in the movement is that the world is in the middle of a dramatic and massive and rapid transformation. Now, it may not happen dramatically and rapidly enough to save us as a species and keep the planet habitable, but it's happening. And and so I have a whole chapter on kind of all the changes that are happening, all the changes that need to happen. So people can have a, have a sense of what that sustainable world that we're headed towards looks like. Well, right up until you said... You're not sure that the species will survive. I was going to say you you really kind of come off as an optimist with regard to climate action. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing that that's a really that's it's a complicated issue. Uh, one of my favorite philosophers is Antonio Gramsci, and he had this expression, which was that you should have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. In other words, you've got to look at reality squarely in the face and see how terrible it is. And there's nothing in my book that doesn't say that we're facing a very terrifying situation. And then what you have to do as a person, in, you know, involved in changing the world is look for where you can make a difference. Right. So to not let sort of your despair take hold. So, I mean, we are so I'm not optimistic in the sense that I am feeling like it's very likely that we're going to solve the problem on time. But I think it's totally possible. 
And you know, as as I'm looking at the the cover of your book, those are children marching in the street. Yeah. So yeah. that's I guess that's where it's got to start. Well, you know, I mean, it's terrible that we've done that to this generation of children that we're we're putting the fate of the survival of the earth on the shoulders of eleven year olds. There's something really sick about that. Mm. But it is true that the 11-year-olds are rising up and, uh, you know, the sort of whatever, the young folks are really rising up and taking it seriously. And, and that does give me reason for hope. I think the climate youth movement has really helped wake people up. But it's sort of appalling that the rest of us uh, didn't deal with it on time. And so they're having to do that. Of course, I'm reminded of it. Greta Thunberg, right? Um, yeah, the young woman yeah. uh, from Sweden who who yeah, she's amazing. And you know the the youth who are on the cover actually are are some youth that I do work with um, in trying to get the California state pension funds to divest. And um, we had an action, and one of the slogans that they they carried a big banner that said "Big Oil Stole My Childhood." And a lot of times when they when the, the that group of of young people testify, one of the things they'll say is is that you know I'm doing this because I have to for my future and my children's future, but I resent it. Yeah, right, rightfully. Within within this handbook, what, what are the key things that people really should be focusing on? You know, I think what people need to focus on, I would say, is stopping the political power of fossil fuel companies. I probably shouldn't have said that because I think I want to step back and say that really there's all kinds of things that everybody can do everywhere they are. And so in some ways, the message of the book is find your people, find your work and get to it, you know. And so really, there's work to be done at all levels and in all places in society. Um, but I do think for myself, one of the things that I think is the most important is um, there's a whole movement. To, it's called Stop the Money Pipeline. The idea being that there are all kinds, the fossil fuel companies are going to do everything they can to keep burning as much as they possibly can until the very end. So we can't, there's no hope trying to change them. If we isolate them politically and we isolate them financially by cutting off the pipeline of money, that's the hope we have of sort of stopping the part of the problem that is digging the hole, if you know what I mean. Like, in other words, there's some things that are about like, hey, let's build the new world. Let's put up more solar panels and get electric cars and better public transportation and better organized cities. So there's a whole range of work that's sort of building the new that's really exciting. It's going to be so much of a better world once we get all those things in place, you know, than anything we've had. It's, it's that building that new, beautiful world is there's lots of work to be done doing that. But then there's also work being done to just stop the the destruction and and you know the fossil fuels are still being subsidized you know trillions of dollars a, a year globally and still being financed and funded by banks pension funds and insurance companies so so we've got to stop we've got to stop that the forces that are keeping fossil fuels as part of our economy do you see or feel that some of these companies are co-opting the clean energy movement in some way uh, well, they're certainly engaging in tremendous greenwashing. I can tell you that, you know, and none of the fossil fuel majors, you know, sometimes people talk about, you know, ExxonMobil and Chevron are the worst, but Shell and BP are a little better. I, you know, maybe marginally, but really Shell and BP are still doing everything they can to burn as much of the carbon assets they have on their books as they possibly can. So there's sort of talk and little nibbling around the edges of them doing something better. I'm not so much worried about them. You know, if they want to invest in solar and wind, hallelujah, you know, good for them. Like, I, I, I don't see that actually as a problem. 
my concern or my thought by asking that was, are they literally, you know, as you said, greenwashing this? Hey, we're we're putting like this one half of one percent into uh, <laughs> into solar oh, energy. Oh, exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah, they spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on fixing a marsh and spent a million dollars advertising that they did it. And actually, in the 1970s, just this is sort of a random thing, but I happened to be working at an independent solar panel company that was doing really interesting work. They were building, you know, sort of a, a set of like, you know, a solar panel or refrigerator or light for, for very low-income people in the global south. And it was a really cool company doing cool work way back then. Um, and they were bought by Atlantic Richfield, you know, Arco, and then Arco suddenly moved the company to doing deep materials research, i.e. let's like slow this whole thing down. So there have been documented cases of of them entering the green energy market and then slowing it down. So I don't think that's really what's happening at this point. But yeah, tremendous levels of greenwashing. So in some in some way, do you, do you feel that they're they're kind of catching the the drift of what's what's coming and are, are getting on board? No, I don't think they are at all. Actually, I mean to tell you the truth, I mean I, I, I you know, again, some of them have some green energy investments, and, and um, some of them are doing some good things. But generally, mostly, the majority of what they're doing is just finding ways to keep profiting off of burning carbon. Let me shift gears to uh, the the politics of this. You discussed the Green New Deal uh, a bit. What's your take on it? Oh, I think it's amazing. I really, I was so excited when the Green New Deal came out. And what so many people have said about it is that it's the first proposal that's adequate to the problem. And so, you know, before you had the Green New Deal, there were all kinds of tinkering around the edges suggestions that were being made in terms of policy. The Green New Deal came out front and center and said, this is what we need to do. And, and, a couple of the things that are exciting about it are the ways it takes the interests of labor really seriously and also the way it takes uh, racial issues really seriously. So I think it's an incredibly positive framing. And one of the things that I love, too, is, you know, so, so um, you know, Senator Markley and um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out with it as kind of its uh, premier uh, co-sponsors. But it was very sketchy, right? It's 14 pages, just a very lightly sketched thing. And then in the last presidential election, what you had was people like Jay Inslee and Bernie Sanders coming up with, you know, multi-hundred-page do- documents that really gave detailed, you know, they filled in all the dots. So all the policy proposals to really get us where we need to go are there. This is Radio Free Galisteo. You're listening to Cynthia Kaufman, author of The Sea is Rising and So Are We, a climate justice handbook. So back to your optimism what's your what's your feeling how how likely are we is it that we're going to see some of these changes happen at least through the political process that we're currently in yeah you know what's so interesting is we are seeing the changes right like the changes are happening um and so lots uh, you know uh you know biden had some executive orders on day one that were just phenomenal i mean really phenomenal and starting to really move things and so i don't know to tell you the truth and i think so much of it rests on that one guy joe manchin you know it's I think if the Democrats can have the courage to, and uh, and unity to overcome the filibuster, 
they're going to be able to do this and a million other great things. And if they don't, then there is a lot that the president can do as executive action. So it's hard to say. Right. And with regard to executive action, if we if you go back to the previous four years, uh, there were a number of things that uh, I, I guess the most generous way to say it is went counter <laughs> to, uh, to yeah. climate action, positive climate action. Uh, like, or even like talking about it or even acknowledging that there was a climate crisis, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable how how backwards things went for those four years. Let me let me ask you about that. How backward did it get? Because I know there there was a lot of you know as you mentioned pessimism about our circumstances as a result of that. Yeah. What did you see, and what what do you see now? Well, certainly we lost four important years, and we lost a tremendous amount of global momentum. Right. I think you know the Paris Climate Accord was really significant, really significant, and it set global ambitions that were you know the idea of as close to one point five degrees you know, Celsius warming as possible and that the whole world is bought onto that. So, I mean, it's really a a world historic tragic situation. Okay, now I'm going to take a weird little detour um, (laughs) that Trump got elected. On the other hand, if he hadn't gotten elected, we would have had a Clinton administration that would have continued with a very lukewarm approach to things. So, you know, politics and history are strange, you know, and so is it historically tragic and and we will never recover the momentum that would have happened? Or was that such a kick in the butt to the whole entire global system and to the forces of neoliberalism and business as usual in this country that now we're out the gate going faster than we ever would have? I don't know. So I I guess um, for someone who's interested in disrupting the status quo, maybe that that really was a, a positive event in, in a weird kind of way. And I'm not saying, right, that anybody should have chosen that, right, or that, the, it, or that you know, many people have died as a result of all the terrible things that happened during those four years. But yeah, exactly. I mean, that because that, I'm also a system disruptor person. And, and I do think that, boy, who would have ever thought that Joe Biden would be our president and would would be talking about the climate crisis in ways that are close to adequate. That's astonishing. It's astonishing to me. You know, even when you go back to Bill Clinton and and Al Gore, you know, Al Gore has done some really important things for the climate. But when he was vice president, uh, the United States played a terrible role in the Kyoto Protocols, keeping them from being anywhere near as strong as the rest of the world wanted them to be. So the sort of dominant democratic consensus up until very recently up until the disruption really caused by, I would say, you know, Sanders' campaign would have had us on a path of total destruction. It's just life is strange. History is strange. Here we are, I think, you know, on a path where the U.S. might play a really significant role in um, in getting us where we need to go. You know, one of the things I would say, too, about about what's happening with Biden is that most of what he put on the table was good. But, you know, we're still I'm very involved in the the fight to end line three, the the expansion of the, the oil pipeline in northern Minnesota. And Biden could shut that down and he hasn't yet. And that's concerning. And also Biden and, you know, his emissary, John Kerry, are doing important things in terms of global finance uh, for a transition. But the U.S. is not doing its share for that. Right. The U.S. now has good targets for how we're going to reduce emissions in the U.S. at a reasonable pace to get to 50 percent reductions by 2030 and 100 percent net zero by 2050. But given how much we've contributed to the problem globally and given what happens with global finance, the U.S. should be doing a lot more to finance transformation in the global south. Let me shift gears again. 
Recently, in the news, like in the past couple of days, we found out about the Colonial Pipeline being hacked. Um, yeah. What? <laughs> what the heck? What do you think? Okay, so here's my take on that. Fossil fuel economy is a terrible thing, right? That it's incredibly centralized. It's incredibly vulnerable. Um, you know, you think about all the wars that have been fought over the geography of oil and the millions of people who've died kind of protecting oil and the United States relationship to the hideous monarchy that is Saudi Arabia. All those so many terrible things in the world have happened because of fossil fuel infrastructure. So, you know, the new coming economy doesn't have that problem. You've got smart grids that are um, more decentralized and just smarter and more updated. You've got uh, infrastructure, which is, is not in itself kind of dangerous and harmful. And so the quicker we can get away from fossil fuels, the quicker stuff like that doesn't happen. Who's your climate activist hero? My climate activist hero. Ooh, that's a, oh, I'll tell you one is uh, David Solnit. He's a, he's an artist. I don't know if you know who he is, but he is a, I've, I've got a bunch of them. Anyhow, he, he was, was uh, one of the leaders of us taking a more celebratory, festive, street festival kind of approach to to organizing, right? So to try to make it fun, engaging, visually compelling and all that kind of stuff. So he's, I think, sort of an unsung hero because he's really a behind the scenes, super shy person. You know, I follow organizations more than I do individuals. Mm. And I say that like in California, there's an organization called the Center for Race, Poverty and the Environment that's doing really important work trying to shut down uh, extraction in California. Uh, the Stop the Bunny Pipeline Coalition is really, really doing important work. Bill McKibben's a hero of mine. You know, one of the things I love about McKibben is that he doesn't have a lot of ego. He supports other people's work. And um, he just does absolutely whatever he can, whatever he can to, to elevate other people's important work. And uh, Bill did the foreword to your, your book. He did, in fact. And that was just a sign of such generosity. You know, he's very famous and I'm very not. And <laughs> Cynthia, could you react to this? Every sci-fi, the world is ending catastrophe film that I've seen has the rich folks, and I think you point this out at some point, they get to the high ground and everybody else has to get washed away or, or, or hit by the meteor. Do you see that happening? It's already happening. I mean, it's already happening. And so absolutely, the the climate crisis is a uh, threat multiplier. In other words, there are places in Florida where it used to be that the poor people lived up the hills and the rich people lived at the beach. And now the rich people are moving away from the beach up to the hills and the poor people are getting displaced. You know, in California, when we have our fires, people with who are rich and have good insurance can rebuild afterwards. And renters and people who didn't have good insurance are out of luck and get displaced. So that's our, and you know, already hundreds of thousands of global refugees because of um, climate change in the global south. It's one of the, the drivers of, uh, of migration from Central America and Hondur Honduras right now. So absolutely, if we don't do this right, all of the forms of inequality and oppression and, and uh, all those systems will just become that much worse. Cynthia, as, as, we, uh, as we wind up, uh, any final thoughts, anything that you would like the folks listening to know? I guess what I want people to know is that it's really important for them to get involved in any way they can with the climate change movement. That, you know, what you referred to as my optimism. I do think it's possible for us to solve this problem, but only if we stop the car headed for the cliff from headed for the cliff. That car is still headed for the cliff. 
right? But there is an alternative. That alternative is wonderful. And we need everybody to to get involved. And I would say that really, my what I would encourage people to do is just to look around and find out what organizations are working in your area. Uh, in, in any state in this country, there's going to be some uh, terrible bills that are horrible for the climate that are going through your legislature and some that are really good, maybe, and to fight against the bad ones and for the good ones. And you know, one of the, the interesting things that happened with the COVID pandemic was that a lot of cities kind of switched around what they were doing and have areas that are car free and things like that. So there's lots of work to be done also, um, just positive work in making cities more sustainable. And again, supporting funding for public transportation, supporting closing down streets, supporting not building any more highways, all that kind of stuff. So really just if you just take a little bit of time and look around, you will find significant work. And I would just encourage everybody to really think about what kind of work works for you, what kind of people do you want to be around in, and just do as much as you can. And if everybody does that, we're going to get there. You've been listening to Cynthia Kaufman, the author of The Sea is Rising and So Are We, a Climate Justice Handbook, published through PM Press. This is John Shannon for Radio Free Galisteo, which you can support at our Patreon site, www.patreon.com. Dot Patreon backslash Radio Free Galisteo.